Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Today is all about trade. President Trump announcing tariffs on $50 billion of imports to the U.S. from China. China saying that it will retaliate. Moody's putting out a note just now saying that because the U.S. tariffs on China are restricted to a relatively small range of high-tech products, we don't expect them to meaningfully impact U.S. inflation. However, individual U.S. sectors ranging from agricultural to aerospace are vulnerable to retaliation by China, uh, from China. Uh, for more, we want to bring in Andrew Maeda. He's been covering this all very closely. He's global trade and economy reporter for Bloomberg News. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on this very busy morning for you, I'm sure. Um, let's just start with what we know so far about what President Trump is targeting with these latest round of, uh, of tariffs. Uh, yeah, so he has kind of refined the list that they put out in April. Um, they've removed some pharmaceutical products. Uh, we're actually still going through the list. <laughs> Frankly, there's there's a lot of products in there, but but looks like uh, they've removed some par- pharmaceutical products. They've removed some consumer goods, and uh, they've refined the list a little bit to focus on uh, China. China's Made in China 2025 plan. This is a plan that they have to dominate certain technologies around the world. Okay. Uh, So basically what Moody's was saying, what a lot of analysts that we've spoken to uh, have been saying is that this is a pretty narrow slice of products. So the tariffs wouldn't necessarily have a broad impact on the U.S. economy or frankly, the Chinese economy. But the concern is what the retaliation is going to be. Is that an accurate kind of assessment of how people are viewing this right now? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And in fact, that's the view of the International Monetary Fund. That's the view of uh, our economists here at Bloomberg Economics. Uh, I mean, if you just do the math on the back end of an envelope, you've got $50 billion in tariffs. Uh, that's 10% of uh, total U.S. Uh, imports from China. You know, So the uh, direct economic hit is probably fairly modest. Now, what the IMF and others say is uh, you know, this could be problematic if we start to get in a situation where this hurts uh, business confidence, where this hurts consumer confidence, and the upsurge and the upswing in investment and uh, consumer spending that we've seen in recent years starts to take a hit. Okay. Also uh, of concern is what the retaliation is going to look like by China. Of course, China just came out with those disappointing retail sales data. So uh, this isn't coming at a great time for that country. Uh, And they're expecting to target the farm sector, right? Yeah, so China, again, said today that it will respond with equal scale, equal intensity. Um, They will put tariffs on a range of American goods, everything from soybeans to chemical products to uh, airplanes. Uh, So that should have an impact on on American companies for sure. Um, You know, we'll see if how much of an impact it actually has on the Chinese economy. Again, uh, you're talking about the second biggest economy in the world. So in terms of a direct economic hit, it should be fairly muted. But, uh, you know, one major takeaway that I I took from today's announcement was the president said that if China retaliates, the U.S. will ramp up even further. Right. 
so that's exactly the type of tit-for-tat cycle that uh, economists worry about. I'm struggling to understand the backstory here because we heard uh, some discussion that trade talks were progressing well between uh, U- the U.S. and China. Uh, then there was the Qualcomm NXP announcement earlier today, which seemed to be a softening of the ties. <laughs> I mean, it seemed like things were moving toward a more conciliatory approach. And then and then this comes out. I mean, do you have a sense of what sort of the strategy is here, what the backstory is? Yeah, I think that there's two camps within the administration. I mean, there's a camp within the administration that's relatively pro-market. Uh, these people tend to be free traders. I'm thinking of people like Stephen Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow. Uh, they t- tend to be a little more transactional. I mean, I think that they were trying to head this off with some type of quick deal, you know, trying to potentially buy more energy, buy more soybeans, uh, you know, throws in uh, approval of the NXP deal. Uh, U.S. Uh, goes a little lighter on on uh, ZTE, and then we all go home. Um, but but I think that there are people within the administration. Uh, I would put Ambassador Lighthizer in that camp. I would put uh, certainly Peter Navarro in that camp, who want deeper structural changes to the Chinese economy. And 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 of course, the president himself wants a reduction in the overall trade deficit. If that is the goal, this uh, this isn't going to end anytime soon. Yeah, and uh, frankly, this this does raise a lot of questions for what it does to China. Chinese, uh, China's economy, especially given the fact that we are seeing some signs of it slowing down. Hey, before I let you go, I do want to get a sense of what's going on with NAFTA. What's the latest there? Well, uh, NAFTA, I would say, is uh, on the back burner right now. Um, you know, officials from all three countries were kind of working around the clock a few weeks ago to try to get a deal. Um, and, and the deadline really was to try to get it done uh, in a timely manner so that they could get it through this Congress. I think that uh, that uh, deadline has either passed or, or will pass very shortly. And uh, so talks have kind of gone in the deep freeze. I mean, the, the X factor really is, you know, does the president just decide to withdraw at some point? Yeah. Andrew Maeda, thank you so much for uh, joining me. It's a very busy day today on the trade front. I'm sure you uh, have your day filled out. Andrew Maeda, global trade and economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Washington, D.C. Emerging market currencies are really taking it on the chin today. Uh, They are down, according to the MSCI index of EM currencies, they are down the most since November 2016. Joining me now to talk about this, Paul McNamara. He's investment director for emerging markets at GAM, uh, which oversees $11 billion in developing world assets. And he joins us from London. Paul, thank you so much uh, for joining me. This is really an important topic, and you have decades of experience uh, (laughs) dealing with it. So you are the person... What's going on? Why, why, why are these currencies absolutely falling out of bed today? Uh, they're actually behaving pretty much uh, as, as precedent suggests. I mean, as a rule of thumb, you know, if the dollar rises 1% against the majors, you know, so the, say the DXY, the Federal Reserve's trade-weighted basket, uh, if it goes up 1% against that, it goes up about 1.5% against EM on average. And that's pretty much exactly what's happened this year, that when the dollar was weak for sort of January, February, EM did very well. 
then the dollar snapped back and uh, emerging markets came off you're sort of out of proportion with the developed markets. But there's, there's nothing really new going on here. I mean, EM currencies are really something only to own when, when the dollar is weak. And a strong dollar has always, you know, for decades, as you say, right. has been a problem for um, EMFX. All right. So as uh, an investor in developing markets and in the credit in particular, how do you maneuver around this? You know, if this is going to be the trend, the norm for even a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, it could decimate credit investments regardless of, of sort of the, your view on um, on the actual fundamental uh, health uh, of the companies. Yeah, it, it, it could. Um, I mean, the first thing to do is to look at countries where, who are trying to service uh, foreign, foreign debt out of local currency revenue. Uh, and the most, the most glaring example of that, I think, is Turkey, which is, which is one we've been concerned about uh, for a while. I mean, the two currencies hit hardest this year have been Turkey and Argentina, right. which are the two which are, which are running external deficits. And I, th- I think that's really where you want to be worried. I mean, EM fundamentals now are actually in much better shape than they were in 2013. So our, our instinct is really uh, more to knuckle down, uh, kind of keep our heads down for a bit, because, you know, there's a couple of markets, I think Russia and Brazil in particular, which stand out, that if we get a little bit of stability on the dollar, we think could snap back quite strongly. But I think, you know, we'd be still quite cautious about places like Turkey. You and a lot of other people, I think. People are (laughs) absolutely fleeing Turkey and Argentina. Are you actively buying anyone right now? Uh, I mean, we've actively been adding long duration in Brazil because what we've seen there is a big steepening of the curve. So the back end there, I think, looks very interesting. We've also been dipping a toe into Argentina. Uh, I mean, the trouble with Argentina is it's not a terribly liquid market, you know, and and uh, and if you, once you are in, it's quite it can be quite difficult to get out. But I think you know, unlike uh, Turkey, I think the problems in Argentina look fixable. So to the extent that we, we we've we're trying to catch the falling knife, uh, we'd rather do it in Argentina than Turkey. Have you been buying? the 100-year bonds? Uh, no, we've been buying local <laughs> currency paper. Because I was interested, uh, you know, Argentina managed to buy, uh, managed to sell bonds with uh, maturities of 100 years last year. And everyone said, this is a terrible idea. This is absolutely uh, going to be a losing trade. And sure enough, uh, here I'm looking at the dollar price of these bonds that were sold at par. 80 cents on the dollar, you know, absolutely crushed. Uh, But I have to wonder, you know, at at what point do you give up? At what point do you say, you know what, this ship is moving too fast for me to really uh, to catch this knife? I mean, we, you know, one of the things about EM is that, you know, that this kind of counts as routine turbulence. I mean, it, it's not often we get a year go by without, you know, sort of something that requires a strong stomach to get through. Uh, I mean, you know, even in, you know, even in the great bond, bond rally, uh, currency rally before the global financial crisis, you had, you know, you had outbreaks like 2006, which were very similar to this. Um, I think, you know, we put our faith in fundamentals, unfashionable as that sounds, and that, you know, that there are enough countries which, which, which don't look to us to have these very deep-seated problems. And that's unlike 2013, when you had the Fragile Five, you had current account deficits all over the place. I, you know, I, I think, you know, anybody who goes into EM, you have to be ready to, uh, to ride out a bit of turbulence, uh, right. although, you know, it's not always... It's not always easy. Well, but at what point is does turbulence shift into something more serious, more more I, with contagion? I, I think I, I mean contagion isn't something uh, real, to be honest. I mean, usually, uh, if you look at say you know the classic example, which was Asia in 1997. Uh, 
they all went down because they all had the same problem, which was too much, uh, especially short-term foreign currency borrowing serviced out of usually property investments. Uh, you know, so all the countries which had the same problem you know, suffered the same, suffered the same outcome. Uh, I mean, this time, like I said, it's really only Turkey we see as, 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 as a crisis candidate. We, we, we're staring very clear of Turkey. Uh, across the rest, you know, if you don't see fundamental problems, I think you kind of have to grit your teeth and stay involved. 20 seconds. Are you worried about ETFs? <laughs> of course. Well, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're cheaper than the funds we offer. We're outperforming them. I think we'll worry more when we see an ETF that does better than our fund. <laughs> Paul McNamara, thank you so much for being uh, with me. A very Pleasure. important topic uh, today. Paul McNamara is Investment Director for Emerging Markets at GAM UK, overseeing about $11 billion in developing world assets. Uh, joining me from London. A lot of cross currents right now in the debt markets. There's a big question. Is it time to go long risk given how tight spreads are uh, in a lot of the corporate credit market and given the fact that companies are levering up? Or is it time to back away even though the good times could keep rolling for a while longer? Here to answer that question, Greg Hahn, President and Chief Investment Officer at Winthrop Capital Management in New York. Greg, thank you so much for being with me. You've been in the debt markets for a very long time. Time. You've seen a lot of different cycles. There are concerns that we are heading toward the peak of this credit cycle, given the fact that we are seeing a record pace of M&A globally and we are seeing leverage ratios tick up on some of the loans that we've seen issued. Are you worried about the end of the credit cycle and that it's imminent? So we're not worried. Uh, we're seeing opportunity. Uh, the I would tell you, though, that we are seeing signs that the credit cycle is starting to shift, and we would also add to your list the increase in bankruptcies. So the Bankruptcy uh, Council showed a spike last February, um, and anecdotally, as we talk to bankruptcy councils around the country, they're seeing a pickup in activity, um, and it's covering all sectors, including real estate. So that's anecdotal. But with spreads wider right now, especially on the investment grade side since February, we're seeing wonderful opportunities in the bond market. All right. So where are you seeing the opportunities specifically? So we like, we like banks. Some of these banks that are forced to build their uh, capital ratios like Wells Fargo and Deutsche Bank, that helps bondholders. All that does is that's, that's a capital uh, level underneath the, uh, the bond piece of it, and we like that. Okay. One thing that you, you noted uh, in the research piece that you sent over was that you like triple B rated corporate bonds. This is the lowest rated tier of investment grade debt. And frankly, it has been pinpointed by the likes of PIMCO and Western Asset Management as being uh, kind of uh, harboring quite a bit of risk nowadays, more so than usual. Why do you like it, even though these are the companies that are arguably levering up the most? So it, it, we have to be careful to, to not paint the whole, in, the whole sector with the same brush. There are parts of the triple B sector that we think make a lot of sense. There's industrials, defense, that are uh, wonderful companies that are well run. But when you look at some of the specialty finance, if you look at the REIT sector, some of the REITs are going to feel some pressure, and we'd see some downgrades in that area as well. But again, we've seen, we've seen triple B spreads widen out much further than a, the single A spread over the last year. And there's opportunity. We're being compensated for that risk right now. That's really interesting. And that's actually uh, somewhat of a controversial and, uh, and, and uh, kind of against the market kind of bet. 
right now? Yeah, markets don't markets don't move in straight lines. So <laughs> uh, these are these are positional, and so uh, with we expect as the summer comes through, volatility is going to come down. Uh, with volatility coming down, we'll see some spread contraction. Uh, we're expecting, we're, knock on wood, we're expecting a little bit quieter summer than we saw in the beginning. And what's supporting that is the new issue calendar starting to slow. Right. So when we had new issuance, which is supporting uh, a lot of stock buybacks, I'll give you that. We're seeing a lot of stock buybacks. Um, but uh, corporate America is a lot savvier at managing their capital structure right now. And, and uh, we, we think that the triple B sector offers some value. So you started by, by saying that you are seeing signs that we're getting toward the end of the credit cycle. Um, where does the biggest risk lie if that is the case? Well, this, it, it always happens. They, you know, we'll see it in um, subprime lending. The banks are taking money. For the most part, we're seeing banks reduce their loan loss uh, reserves. Um, to, and that's helping support bank earnings. But when the cycle turns, we don't have that cushion in the banking sector. So that's one area that we're seeing right now where there's some, some concern. All right. So you like bank debt, but you are concerned that banks are reducing. Yeah, it's lost. the subprime market. It, okay. it, it's that subprime auto. Right. You know, it's, it's really you're, you're seeing it come through in the consumer sector. The consumer is looking really good right now, but it's uh, uh, the consumer balance sheet looks good. The job market's solid. There's a lot of good things happening, and we would expect – that it's it's going to flow through some of the statistics, and we're going to see that consumption increase. People are going to go out and take on loans to go buy cars or lease cars, and uh, it's it's going to put pressure. It's not going to happen immediately, but the trend is going to. We're not going to move in this straight line. It is going to shift right. heading into the end of the year. So, Greg, we would not be surprised. We, we wouldn't be surprised to see a slowdown in the second half or the or a mid mid part of 2019. Yeah. Uh, so w- with respect to the backdrop of interest rates, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is getting more hawkish. Do you expect the, the 10-year yield to climb materially? I mean, how much are you sort of uh, hinging your market view on the idea of higher 10-year yields? Right. So this is this is the interesting part, because remember, we're still in this huge experiment. We've got a four and a half trillion dollar uh, bond portfolio on our central bank's balance sheet, and we're pushing short-term interest rates up, talking about tightening, yet interest rates are still near historic lows, and we're getting relief. So investors are coming back into the market and saying, hey, I, I can finally earn a rate of return on my short-term bond portfolio. Um, so we see, we're looking at the 10-year treasury in a range of 3 to 335 going into the uh, end of the year. And the risk, the biggest risk, is that the Federal Reserve actually inverts the yield curve pushes short-term interest rates higher than long-term interest rates. And initially, we started the year thinking that they, they weren't going to do that, and we're, we're, they were going to push to the edge and not, not continue. But we think, we think that they actually will continue. So uh, one thing that I'm curious about is how people are viewing uh, sort of stocks versus bonds right now. And if people are risk on and thinking that the U.S. economy has another bump up to go before uh, the turning of the credit cycle, why wouldn't you just go into equities rather than lower rated bonds? So the equity market, in, in our view, of the equity market is it's it's got this has been a long rally and it's it's late stage. So the penalty for missing earnings right now is pretty severe, and we've seen that in retail with with L Brands, uh, Dollar General, Walmart. We've seen it in some of the tech. And so it, it's in several industries. When a company doesn't hit expectations, you'll see stock go down seven to ten percent trading. That's 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 stressful. 
So uh, what are you buying uh, in the equity market? So, and, and we still like, there's some tech, large cap tech that we like, like Microsoft, that we, um, we've been adding to. We still like Walmart, even though um, the, uh, the, the last earnings release was a little controversial. Yeah. Um, we've been adding to that. We're adding to Salesforce. So we're, we're across the board on our blended strategy. Greg Hahn, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, Greg Hahn, President and Chief Investment Officer at Winthrop Capital Management in New York. Uh, Definitely a controversial call there with respect to the triple B bonds, the lowest rated uh, tier of investment grade bonds has seen a huge surge in outstanding. Uh, The outstanding has almost tripled since 2010. Uh, At the same time, uh, his point is well taken that there are uh, specific companies that are in solid shape and that are in that bucket. When it comes to international relations, it can be tough to parse out what you need to pay attention to from the noise. Here to help us do that is Jack Devine. I'm very pleased to say he's founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and former acting director of the CIA's operations outside the U.S. Jack, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. You put out your latest intelligence report, and I was interested to know, uh, just taking a step back, In a previous interview, we talked about how the biggest risk was probably North Korea. What is it now? Has it changed? I think it has changed. I think the summit has put at least temporarily on a hold. I mean, I think there was momentum moving towards, uh, frankly, it looked at a certain point as if we might end up having to take some military action. So I think we're on hold on that side of it, and uh, the real work work, uh, begins. The place I'm I would keep an eye on is Iran now. Yeah. The, you know, we bounce back and forth. Uh, but I would say even as early as the 70s, when I was, I remember meeting one of the directors for a meeting, and he was saying that the number one target, one number one problem is North Korea. And when uh, President Trump met President Obama for the transition, number one problem was North Korea. So it's always been up near the very top. So in those days, they didn't have nuclear weapons, so it was even more of a problem in the last couple of years. So I, yeah. I, I think I think we're at least temporarily in a good spot. Okay, so then if the focus is shifting to Iran as the uh, likely hotspot, what's the real issue here? The Iran deal is all but dead at this point. Uh, what do you expect will happen going forward? Well, I think this is my problem in understanding the Iran deal. What's the... After you walk away from the deal, what happens next? What's our what's our next move? How does this play out? And I think there's two schools of thought here. One is the the regime is so fragile that if we are able to keep the heat on, it there'll be an internal regime change. I'm of the other school, which is we have consistently overestimated how much uh, tension there is in society and how much pain. We underestimate how much pain a society can go through. I mean, you look at Venezuela today or North Korea. I mean, the Iranians live better than either of those uh, countries. But um, my point is, uh, if we're looking for regime change by walking away, and that's the end of the play, uh, I think we're in a uh, in a poor position because I think the Europeans are looking for a way around. I think they're going to be frustrated and finding that. I think the Chinese and Russians are going to try to find ways to provide 
sustenance. Yeah. So the deal um, may stay uh, stay afloat, but I, I, uh, in a very disorganized way, no way that any of us would recognize it as being meaningful. So what happens? I mean, if it doesn't work out and the, the economy starts to go south and they're not getting the benefits, then I would expect the Iranians to return to developing a nuclear weapon. And what is our game plan that day? And that is not clear to me. Yeah. I, there's a school of thought that thinks, you know, you punch them in the nose and get their attention. I, that's not the way I think things get done. If you do that, you have to have a plan. Yeah. On what, they gonna, what are they going to do? What are you going to do next? And I think we're, there's a vacuum in discussion about what's the next move here. So why I'm enthusiastic about, I think, the developments in North Korea, yeah. um, I'm not I'm not happy the way things are going on Iran. You know, one thing that I'm struggling with personally is when I see all the headlines about, uh, you know, for example, out of G7 and President Trump and the relations with long, longstanding allies of the U.S., how important is it that there has been a breakdown of trust and communication between the allies? Now, this is an interesting point. You've, you and I touched on it a long time ago, and that is I, I think uh, when we look at the alliance, um, and much of the static recently is about how the alliance is going to fall apart and it's disastered and so on. And the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, the, the G7 is not going to become the G6. They're not <laughs> going to be. We are such a big player in this. Right. That uh, my guess is they walked out of the room and each of them said to themselves, hey, how do I cut a deal with this, uh, <laughs> this administration, you know? And the same thing on. Uh, on Korea, they said, oh, the South Koreans weren't fully briefed. And it's like, well, where do you think the South Koreans are going to go? So I think we blow this uh, out of proportion. What is emerging, though, which I think is a really interesting point for me, is there is a way that countries are going to have to learn to deal with Trump, and they're on a steep learning curve, and that is you're never going to be per- permanently an endearing friend. You're going to be a friend as long as everything's working fine, and then if not, he's going to treat you as if you're not a friend. Right. So we've been accustomed for 20 years of some kumbala <laughs> where we try and get together. Yeah. So it is a real shakeup, but it is not going to change the ingredients. You know, the Europeans are yeah. not going to go into the arms of the Russians and you know, the Japanese are not going to go in the arms of the right. uh, Chinese. I mean, there's, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. just parameters to this. And right. we're, we're overstating it. Jack Devine, thank you so much for being with me today. Always wonderful getting your insights. Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and the former uh, acting director of the CIA's ex-U.S. operations. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.